We just celebrated Christmas, and, and over the Christmas break, and if you came to our Christmas Eve service, we read the Christmas story. And as I read that just privately and personally, there's a passage that reminded me of another passage. So if you want to make your way to Hebrews chapter 10, I'll make my way there in a second. Hebrews chapter 10 will be our passage this morning. After the birth of Christ in Luke's narrative in Luke chapter 2, we're told something very interesting about the boy, Jesus. Um, in Luke 2.41, his parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover, and, and he was 12 years old. Okay, So he's just a, a young man, very, very young man. His parents celebrate the Passover, and they head back home. And when they get home, they realize, oh, where's our son? So they go back to Jerusalem. In verse 46, it says, After three days they found him, in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him, Jesus, were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus' response is fascinating to me. Here's a 12-year-old young kid. He says, this is the ESV, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? That doesn't quite capture all of it, I don't think. The Amplified Bible, I really like the Amplified Bible, by the way, if you guys are looking for a translation. I want to read that verse 49 for you. Jesus said to them, How is it that you had to look for me? Did you not see and know that it, is, uh, that it was not necessary for me as a duty to be in my father's house and to be occupied occupied?" with my father's business. So it's not just that Jesus was in the temple, but from age 12, Jesus was laser-focused about being about the father's business. That leads us to Hebrews chapter 10. That when I read that over Christmas, it reminded me of this passage in Hebrews 10, which we're going to look at briefly for communion. Most of the time when we take communion... We remember the act of Christ. And what I mean by that is this. Jesus offered Himself up as a sacrifice, and we focus on that, and we rightly focus on that. But this morning, what I want to consider is, is a little bit different. Not the act so much, but what did the act secure for us? If you were to try and sum up what the theme of the book of Hebrews is, Jesus is best is the way I can describe it. It opens up talking about how Jesus, He's better than the angels, right? He's, he's exalted even above angelic beings. Not only that, Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses was a servant in the house, it says, but Jesus is a son and an heir. Jesus uh, is, is better than Abraham because Abraham, uh, if you read the Old Testament, Abraham paid tithes to the priest Melchizedek, right? He honored that priest, which Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. Even the Levitical priesthood, Jesus is better than Levitical priesthood for the same reason. Um, they offered the blood of goats and rams. Jesus offered Himself. He wasn't even a Levite. Jesus' blood, as we're told, is better than the blood of goats. And that's what we're going to focus on today. We're also told Jesus, the covenant Jesus made, which we're celebrating in communion, this is the new covenant which is made in my blood. 
The new covenant is better than the old covenant. In fact, it replaces the old covenant. So over and over and over is the theme in the book of Hebrews. You see, Jesus is superior to everything as a theme. What we're going to focus in chapter 10, by the time the writer gets to chapter 10, what he's specifically looking at is the blood. Why is the blood of Christ better than the Levitical sacrifices that the Jews were part of. So as you know, in Jewish history, the Levitical sacrifices were instituted by God. They were part of the law. They were prescribed. But if you look in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 with me, we're going to start reading. There's several things that I'm going to point out of what the law and the, the, the blood sacrifices the law commanded could not do versus what Jesus did and why He's superior. Okay, So in chapter 10, verse 1 of Hebrews, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. So we find the first thing is that the law and all the sacrifices, all those blood sacrifices, were a shadow of the true thing. So to make it easy, we have a tree right outside here. Right? You can go outside and look at the shadow of the tree and probably determine from looking at the shadow that what I'm looking at is the form of a tree. But you don't know what kind of tree it is. You really don't know how big it is. You don't know much at all about the tree itself. Right? You see a shadow of it. You don't see an image of it. Just the shadow. What the law contained, and this is so important for Christians to understand, what the law contained was a shadow. You could see some things but not the form, not the substance, not the meat. I couldn't determine what kind of sacrifice was needed to take away my sins. So the writer says that those realities that the, shadow, that the law was a shadow of, um, the shadow pointed to these ultimate realities. Now I'm just going to summarize this real quick for you, what these realities are. In chapter 9 and kind of leading up to chapter 10, there's several realities that people need. The first one that he talks about is redemption. The reality that we need to be redeemed from our sin. The, sh- the law was a shadow of that. Another reality that it brings up in chapter 9, verse 15 is we have an eternal inheritance, right? God had promised in the Abrahamic covenant a land, a heritage. Um, Hebrews 11 talks about how all those people who went before us in faith didn't receive that inheritance yet because Christ hadn't come yet. So there's an eternal inheritance, which is a reality for believers. Most probably, I guess, focused on by Christians, the reality of the need for forgiveness of sins. Chapter 9, 22-24, let's read that. It's right next to where we're at. Chapter 9, 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So thus it was necessary for the copies, that is the earthly temple and everything, of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves are purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Those are just some of the realities that Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 is talking about that the, the law pointed us to. We need redemption. We're looking for a better inheritance, and we need forgiveness. These are all realities that the law itself could not give us. 
But Christ did. Christ Himself is not a shadow. He's the substance casting the shadow. He's what you're after. He's what you're looking for. The second thing that chapter 10 points out to us why Christ's sacrifice is better is that the law is unable to perfect us. Look at chapter 10, verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered these earthly sacrifices since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. If you jump down um, to verse 10 with me, in contrast to the law unable to make us perfect, what did Christ do? Look at verse 10. Um, and, that, uh, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Now verse 14 is the key. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The thrust here in this second point is that the law, people think that by doing works, doing works, keeping this, not doing that, that's what perfects you. That doesn't perfect anyone. That doesn't make you good. That doesn't separate you unto the Lord. That's what the Jews didn't understand. They thought they were the people of God because they kept the rules. No, they didn't. If you look at Psalm 51, Psalm 51 is the psalm of David's confession with Bathsheba after he sinned with her. If you look at the Levitical law, what David should have been required to do as a ruler, he was required under Levitical law to go to the priesthood, offer sacrifice for his sin. But what did David do? He said in that psalm, I'd offer those sacrifices if you'd be pleased with it. But you're not pleased with those, Lord. You desired a broken and contrite spirit. He pled with the mercy of God. He understood grace versus law. He understood that keeping the law and doing this and that is not going to perfect him. It's appealing to the character and mercy of our Lord. And Jesus is better. He's the only one who can separate us unto the Lord. Um, so the law could not perfect us, leading to our third point, because the law itself could not cleanse us from sin. Now, if you think of cleansing, think of it this way. Every, every one of us, hopefully, wakes up in the morning and takes a shower, right? And we're removing the dirt, the filth, the whatever from our body. Cleansing, biblically, is the same idea. It's the removing of filth. And so when we talk about needing to be cleansed from sin, what we're talking about is we need our sins removed from us. The law could never do that. In fact, it does just the opposite, Hebrews 10 says. It, doesn't not, it not only doesn't remove or cleanse us, because if it did, the writer says, they, they wouldn't have to keep making sacrifices, Right? If you're cleansed, why keep sacrificing? Sins have been removed once and for all. Why do you have to keep doing it? The law doesn't do that. It does the opposite. It actually reminds you of sin every year. That's what verse 3 says. In these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. So not only does, does the law not cleanse us, not remove our sin, it actually puts your sin before you all the time. That's why people who try to live according to law, have you ever noticed? They're just down and burdened all the time. They're heavy. There's no joy in their life. 
When you try to live a legalistic life, it's like, oh, I'm never good enough. Why? Because that's what the law does. It reminds you, hey, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. That's what it's supposed to do. But what does Christ do? Christ perfects us by cleansing us, by taking away our sin. If you read with me going on in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 15 following, the Holy Spirit bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds. What's it say, church? Do you believe that? I mean, honestly, I'm not asking to be rhetorical. Do you truly believe that the Lord doesn't remember your sin? You see, there's a difference. In, in the law, when someone would sin, they'd go to the temple, they'd buy a dove or a pigeon or you know whatever, and they'd have the priest sacrifice it. That sin's taken care of until they sin again. And then they'd have to make another sacrifice until they sin again, right? And so goes the pattern. That's law. You're always constantly appealing to God for forgiveness. You know what the difference is in the new covenant of Christ? Forgiveness is already yours, so that when you sin, it's not asking God for forgiveness per se, it's thanking God that it is forgiven. See the difference? Positionally, in the heavens, every one of your sins, past, present, and in the future, is paid. So when you confess sin, you're, you're not having to go to the Lord and, and make another sacrifice. No, sacrifice has been made. Payment's been in full. It's covered. So it's more of a confession of, Lord, thank you that you have paid this for me. Thank you that my sin is not remembered before you. Thank you that the blood of Christ has covered it, cleansed it, taken it away. That the law can never do. The law will always remind you of how bad you are. If you find yourself in that trap of just being burdened all the time of how sinful you are, how sinful you are, you need to understand what the new covenant and the blood of Christ has actually done for you. It's cleansed you. It's taken your sin away. I think Christians truly struggle with this and we revert, sometimes unknowingly, back under legalism because we don't really believe that verse, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Do you realize how powerful of a statement that is? That the blood of Christ is so effective that even the sins you have yet to sin are covered, cleansed, taken away, so that you can stand before God free, forgiven, set apart for Him already in Christ, Christ has removed our sins from us. Now, how did He do this? How did our cleansing actually happen? There's several scriptures uh, throughout the New Testament that talk about this idea of cleansing and how Jesus actually took our sins away from us to cleanse us. For instance, Paul said to the Corinthian church, He became sin who knew no sin, that what? We might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus, who knew no sin, took our sin upon Himself. He became sin. Why? So we can become His righteousness. 1 Peter 2.24 says it perfectly. How did He cleanse us? Peter writes this. 
He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see that idea of cleansing in there. What the law couldn't do, Jesus did. How did He do it? He took our sins upon Himself on the tree. If Jesus has taken your sin from you and borne it, are they yours anymore? No. So why do you live under the burden of that? Because you need to understand what the blood of Christ has actually done for you. He's borne your sins. He's taken them from you. They are His. Not only did He bear them, but He paid the penalty for them. Why is that important? It's one thing if He were to just bear them, but if He's paid in full the penalty of it, they can never be brought back up and charged against you anymore. You realize that? I've given this illustration when I talk to people about grace. Say this, if, if I were a banker and I gave you a loan for $1,000 and you're making payments on that loan and you're trying to pay that debt off, but you miss a payment and your best friend comes into the bank and says, you know what, my best friend's behind on his loan. I'm going to pay his loan off in full. I, as the banker, would be a unjust banker if I then went to you and said, hey, you owe me some money. You missed a payment. You see that? I, I can't do that to you as a banker. Why? Because the debt's already been paid. It wasn't paid by you, but it was paid by another. I can't, as a banker, go to you and require anything more of you. It's been paid. So Jesus has taken our sins away from us. That's the cleansing. But then He's paid in full the penalty so that there's no charge. That's what the blood of Christ has done for you. That truth is the most liberating truth of the Gospel. And countless number of Christians live still under the burden of the law because they think they still have to do this and do that and keep this and do that or else I don't get the benefits. No, it's all yours. <laughs> That's what grace is. That's why grace changes everything. That's why grace is so amazing. He's taken it from you. He's paid in full. There's nothing left for you to do. The loan's paid off. Nothing's required except to trust the one who did it. To worship Him. I loved yesterday's uh, men's group. Uh, what Braden said yesterday was, was it. The result of all this, there's only one thing left. Worship. <laughs> That's why Hebrews goes on in chapter 13 to say, hey, what's the sacrifices we're to offer now, church? Is it blood of goats and all that? No. The sacrifice we offer now, Hebrews 13 says, is the sacrifice of praise. You see that now? Our offering to God is not for sin. That's taken away. Our offering to God is our worship. Our praise. It's done. We can stand free and worship God. It's beautiful, right? It's it. So Christ has removed our sins. The law could never do this. He, he did it by taking our sin upon Himself and paying it. As Hebrews 9 says, there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. The blood of goats couldn't do it, but the blood of Christ could. Paid in full, we have forgiveness. I love this idea of what the superiority, not, of, not just of Christ over angels and Moses and Abraham and the Levitical priesthood and all these things, the blood of Christ gets to the very heart of man's need. And it deals with the thing that's separating us from the Father. 
And there's nothing that can compare to the blood of Christ. So it is right for us when we observe communion to remember the act of Christ's offering, but it's also good for us to remind ourselves what that act actually secured for us. Complete and total redemption. Complete and total forgiveness. Complete and total inheritance for us. Nothing's left to be done. You don't have to keep working for anything. Nothing's required of you except to believe in the one who did it. As Jesus said in John 6, hey, what's the work of God? The work of God is this, believe in the one whom He sent. Why? Because I've done everything. I've fulfilled everything. That's the freedom and grace and beauty of the Gospel. So Christ is the substance. He's the true form. Christ perfectly and permanently sets us apart for Him. He perfects us. Christ cleanses us from our sin by taking our sin from us and putting it on Himself. And Christ remembers our sin no more because He paid it. The debt's gone. You see how Christ's blood is superior in every way to what you, someone else, or the law could never do. Superior in every way. That's why Jesus said, hey, of all the things I want you to remember, there's two. It's two ordinances I'm leaving the church, and it's enough. Communion and baptism. It's all you need to know. <laughs> the blood of Christ is sufficient in every way. So with that, I want to read, before we take communion, 1 Corinthians 11, if you want to go there with me. And if you're visiting, if you're new, uh, we at Waypoint, we intentionally um, try, to, try to do communion differently just so that it doesn't become uh, a routine for us, you know, rote, um, something that's kind of mindless. Um, what we do is, is, here in a moment, I'll have all you guys come up and you'll get your own elements. Um, husbands, if you want to serve your wives, you're welcome to do that. And then we'll sit back down and we'll go through this passage in 1 Corinthians 11. We'll read it together. So why don't we take a moment. I'll ask the deacons if they want to come up to uh, get some elements for our teachers, both in the nursery and the kids' classroom, and take them then. And then we'll partake of, of uh, communion together, church. So I'll invite you on up here. So communion is special for us at Waypoint. Um, as we've just seen, Communion commemorates and brings us back to remembrance. And in fact, that's what Jesus said in the Gospels in the Last Supper when He instituted this uh, sacrament. He said, do this in remembrance of me, of me. In remembering the blood of Christ, we are remembering specifically the sacrifice. In baptism, we're remembering the resurrection. The, the heart of the Gospel, the heart of the hope of every believer is both the death and the resurrection of Jesus. If those two things had not have happened, Paul argues we'd still be in our sin, we'd still be without hope. So communion is a special time for us. We want to keep it special. We don't ever want this to, to become something rote and mechanical. It speaks to the very heart of why we're even here in worship. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul, in writing to the Corinthian church in verse 23, he says this, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it. And here's what He said, This is My body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. So church, let's partake of the bread together, please. Paul continues in verse 25. He says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Church, let's remember the blood of Christ and partake together. Not only are we remembering the body of Christ given for us, the sinless body it's depicted in the, the unleavened bread that we just partook of, the sacrifice given to God without sin, without blemish. We remember also the blood of the covenant which established this new covenant. It fulfilled what the law couldn't, as we just said, in that it cleansed us, removed our sin, and paid in full the penalty so that we stand forgiven, we stand free, and our, our sacrifice now to give to God is our worship. So not only is it a remembrance, verse 26 says this also, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Communion is also a proclamation. We remember and we proclaim without the shed blood of Christ, there's no forgiveness. Without the shed blood of Christ, we're all under our sin still. Without the shed blood of Christ, year after year after year, we'd be charged by the law. But church, we stand now forgiven because of this one act, as Hebrews 10 says, He offered once for all time one sacrifice. And we stand here 2,000 years later in the presence of God, united to Him because of this one act we just observed. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to worship. We're going to offer our sacrifice to God in worship, all right? Father God, thank You so much as we remember Your one righteous act, the power of the blood of Christ, which forever and finally cleansed and forgave and paid in full the penalty and reality of our sin. Father, not only have You forgiven us, Father, You've removed the sin from us so that we stand as new creatures. When You look upon us, as our brother Andrew yesterday morning said, you don't see sin anymore. You see the righteousness of Christ. You've removed all of our guilt. You've removed all of our stain. As Isaiah chapter 1 says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Father, You've removed the stain even. So that we stand perfect, complete, new creatures in Your sight all because of the work of Christ. Father, it's not of our doing. We can't boast as though we did something great and we can stand before You having done this and that, Lord. It's all Christ but that speaks to the power, perfectness of, of Christ and His sacrifice. He's sanctified for all time, perfectly those who believe. So Father, may You find our sacrifice now of worship pleasing. May it be from a thankful, grateful, joyful heart that my sin is remembered no more. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.